0: This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 24th, 2022. Today, we take a look at a subject that, quite frankly, it's a little shocking and somewhat disappointing that we still have to talk about. If you ask most investors or CEOs and board members about the real financial and business case reasons to promote and encourage gender diversity, they'll quote you chapter and verse. And yet, we're more than a decade into the annual Women on Boards report from MSCI, which shows some progress but not nearly enough. It's been nearly 50 years since the first annual International Women's Day, which is coming again soon, and we're over a century removed from the seeds of that movement, which began in New York City with three seemingly simple demands. We'll hear more about that wider history a bit later in the program. But we're going to start today with a special report from the host of our sister podcast, ESG Now. Mike DiCibato recently spoke with the chief author of the latest Women on Boards report, Christina Milhoman, vice president on MSCI's ESG research team. Here's their conversation.
1: Christina, thanks so much for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about Christina's new report on the progress of diversity in the boardroom and at companies in general. And so, Christina, this is an annual report that we put out. Take me through this year's main findings. What stood out compared to last year? What trends did you see in the data, if any?
2: So the good news is that women representation at board level continues to improve, and so does the percentage of companies that have reached the 30% woman director's threshold. Now, on the other side of the scale, the percentage of companies with all-male boards continues to decrease. And all of that while we are still going through the pandemic, which obviously have added a lot of layers of complexity that companies have to deal with. Now, the not so good news is that board of directors remain male dominated and that improvements in women representation, they tend to be more incremental as opposed to more meaningful shifts. Now, that said, it's important to acknowledge that historically um, improvements in women representation at board level, they tend to be much higher than among CEOs and CFOs. This is in fact an area, if you wish, that the glass ceiling is yet to be broken.
1: Why do you think that is? I mean, women hold around 50% of the jobs in the US, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's 2022 numbers, uh, 2020 numbers, excuse me. So why is it so hard to get them to represent even 35% of the top jobs?
2: That's a million dollar question. That's a great question. I mean, as you know, there is so much research out there debunking some of the myths around gender diversity while at the same time uh, supporting and demonstrating some of the benefits of gender diversity, including financial and economic benefits, which is an important way to demonstrate the business case for gender diversity. Although I would argue that it kind of risks uh, creating a double standard. And what I mean by that is that you don't see and you don't expect to see male peers uh, justifying or rationalizing their presence in a boardroom or the C suite on economic or financial terms. So, why would they expect women to do so? And you can't forget that the pressure to increase diversity is on the rise. And the 2021 proc season was a proof of that. So that means that companies that lack gender diversity or diversity more broadly, they are not only missing out on the benefits of diversity, but they are also limiting the talent pool that is available to them at a time where there is a war for talent and they are increasing their reputational risk. So with all of that information in mind, it's really hard to, to understand why it has been so hard to increase gender diversity, especially among senior executives.
1: Yeah, I think our main argument is always that it relies back on the research that you mentioned. Heterogeneous thought is better than homogenous thought. Groups that have different members available to have a conversation with tend to come to a different conclusion, they're often better conclusions, they have better self-analysis, there's all that. I take your point, too, in the earlier uh, comment about how uh, a man doesn't have to really justify why he's on this board, while a woman might. I I know that there's issues with um, imposter syndrome, where people think they got hired because they just had to fill a quota, that has to be looked at, but it's interesting what you brought up there in regards to that. What if we broke the data into regions Are some regions performing better than others? I know this is a global outlook,
2: uh, absolutely. Uh, companies that are domiciled in developed countries, especially those that domiciled in Europe, uh, they tend to lead the way. They tend to have more gender balance boards. I think that there is a mix of things playing a role here. Uh, as any other complex topic, uh, I don't think that there is one solution that can solve this issue. That said, there are a number of tools that are available to companies and regulators. Uh, I would say that one of them is quotas. And in fact, in 2019, we actually looked at the role the mandatory quotas uh, were playing in terms of improving representation among board of directors, sorry, women representation among board of directors. And what the data suggested at that point in time was that companies that were domiciled in countries with mandatory quota, they were not more likely to reach the quota, but they would also often surpass them. It, it is almost as if the quotas have normalized the presence of women in boardrooms. Now quotas is a very sensible topic and one that tends to attract a lot of pushback, right? So. And arguably, quotas, it's not the most natural way of improving diversity, but it's one of the tools that are available to to regulators, as an example. And and it's one of them that, that can be useful in moving the needle in the right direction and doing it faster.
1: Speaking of quotas and moving from just being strictly about gender diversity on boards to diversity quota in general, that's racial diversity, sexual diversity, and gender diversity. There's these new NASDAQ board diversity rules that are coming on uh, this year. Uh, could you kind of go through what those are and if you think they'll have an impact?
2: So you have the mandatory disclosure. So all NASDAQ listed companies will have to disclose. Directors break down by gender, race, and ethnicity and inform the number of um uh, board of directors that self-identify as members of the LGBTQ plus community. And on the other hand, you have two comply or explain quotas. One that is more gender focused, so companies are expected to have at least one woman director and one that is uh, focused on increasing representation of historically underrepresented groups. So minorities as defined by the rule, which is uh, broadly speaking uh, racial and ethnic minorities and or members of the LGBTQ plus community.
1: Uh, so, do you think that those are actually actionable rules, and they're going to have an impact on how we see boards' gender diversity makeup, sexual and racial diversity makeup?
2: Well. I actually think that the mandatory disclosure would be the most impactful part of it, and it's funny because one second ago I was telling you about how codes could be an important tool, but it, so are mandatory disclosures, right? They they have the potential not only to improve transparency, to uh, help investors better engage with companies. It makes it easier to hold cont- uh, companies accountable for their pledges but they can also drive corporate behavior, right? If anything, when companies are required, Required to collect and disclose data publicly, that means that they have to go through the data, they have to understand the data. And that exercise in itself can be a great exercise for companies to better understand their shortcomings and, and even set up goals. Now I'm not saying that complier explain quotas will have no impact whatsoever, that's not the case. Uh, on the gender side, the impact is like to be very limited because most companies in the US already have at least one woman director. The exceptions are clearly laggards and I'm not sure if a complier explain rule will be enough to persuade them. Now on the other side of the scale, when we are talking about increasing representation of minorities as uh, defined by the rule, I do believe that the complier explain rule has the potential to shape board composition in the coming years, assuming that investors will take the the data that they get from the mandatory disclosure and use the data to engage with companies and to push companies to improve diversity, while at the same time assuming that companies will embrace this opportunity to increase diversity, to increase their talent pipelines, and to improve how they do uh, board of directors selection.
1: I understand that you're saying that, well, with NASDAQ, that might be an actionable uh, item that could change how the racial diversity and makeup of uh, both the C-suite, but also the wider companies change. If you had a thought of what society or companies could do at the moment, let, let's just stick with companies. Society is a pretty tough thing to comment on. Uh, what could? What's one thing that companies could do that you would find most impactful?
2: Can I talk about two things? Of course. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that, first of all, uh, companies have to think a little bit more creatively about how they can reach their own diversity, equity and inclusion goals in a more timely manner and how they can make better use of the data that they hold or the data that they could hold if they collected it right? So I will give an example on that. Like a lot of companies are starting to implement the, those satisfaction, employee satisfaction surveys. And I do believe that this is an important step in the right direction. I do think it can provide a lot of meaningful data. But I would argue that a more meaningful way to conduct the survey was to assess employee satisfaction across different demographic groups, right? I think that can... Uh, help companies get a better understanding about what is the lived experience and how does that differ between groups. The other thing that I was going to say is that I think that even companies that are truly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, they still have a a, a lot of work to do to try to eliminate all the biases. that are deeply rooted in their procedures and how they operate. So, and what I mean by that is really rethinking everything that can impact employees' lived experience. So, that obviously would include uh, hiring practice, but would also include considering attrition rates, attrition rates across different demographic groups, would include uh, improving talent pipelines, uh, career progression assessments, pay gaps, uh, company's culture, and pretty much everything in between.
1: Great. Thank you, Christina, and great report, but thanks so much for talking to me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Christina and Mike covered a lot of ground during that conversation. The progress toward gender diversity on corporate boards, of course, but also the relatively low number of women sitting in the CEO seat. They talked about the pros and cons of regulations, such as the recent NASDAQ report or explain rules, and they took an honest reckoning of the work that still needs to be done but you know how we roll here on Perspectives. One person's view, no matter how well-informed and insightful, never enough. So we reached out to MSCI's Chief Diversity Officer, Tia Counts, to get her take on the first Women on Boards report of her tenure. Here's my conversation with Tia. Tia, welcome back to the program. Great to have you here. Thank you. So we've, we've asked you back on the show today because we're taking a look at international women's day and the MSCI women on boards report specifically but that's sort of the where we are in the story now right the women on boards report how how did we get here
3: i think it's really interesting that we we look at the women on boards report and we we sort of think about you know this is where we are now it's it's the latest step in a very long journey and When I I think about um, the the origins of International Women's Day, which really started way back when in 1908, when a bunch of women, about 15,000 women, um, white women, I would add, you know, decided that they were going to march through the streets of New York. This is the U.S. origins of International Women's Day and demand, um, you know, three essential things. They wanted shorter working hours. They wanted better pay and they wanted the right to vote. We think about these issues now. I think we can see parallels in the world of work for women today, and perhaps some of those parallels are echoed in the Women on Boards report. Women are still struggling with working hours that are too long. The too long. That is when we compare with um, you know other demands on their time. When too long to help them be able to live lives that are compatible with other uh, other demands that they have to meet. So. I look at the pandemic and what the pandemic revealed, and we know that women's lives uh, got a lot harder uh, with COVID. It saw them take the brunt of the responsibility for homeschooling and elder care responsibilities. You know, This was leading to a very high degree of burnout for women. You know, The so-called great resignation is also showing us that, that this trade-off isn't, isn't really working for many women anymore. And they're being forced to choose between a career or, and their family. Um, exacerbated by, by the pandemic. You know, at MSCI, flexible working and hybrid working, you know, these are these are concepts that were accelerated recently, but they're, they're here to stay. You know, smart companies realize that it's necessary if you want to keep your entire workforce engaged, and especially if you want to retain women, you know, you have to be flexible in the way you approach work. You have to be offering um, more flexibility than, than people have seen uh, until recently. Um, the conversation is no longer about shorter working hours. It's really about showing your colleagues that you trust them, that you trust them in a way to, that they can work in a way that's flexible and will give you the same results or better, and um, but also meet their needs. We know that we can be highly functioning without being always on.
0: Why is the flexibility aspect so important for women specifically?
3: Essentially, you know, women have been having to do um, variations of the second and third shift our entire uh, lives as, as members of the of the workforce. So often that meant juggling um, responsibilities in a way that meant that you could uh, show up for um, your, your family, show up for your children, as well as showing up for your employer uh, in, a, in a way that was quite difficult to manage. Um, I think now with COVID and the onset of a lot more... Uh, of women having to do a lot more of this. You know, it's important to give them that space to be able to deliver um, for their families for burdens that disproportionately fall onto their shoulders um, while also allowing them to have the space to care for themselves and then to deliver uh, for the company. You know, no one's really thinking about um, flexibility um, in this way, uh, before, because I, I don't think people quite realized how much of this burden um, had to do with just having many demands on one's day during the same time uh, time of the day. Uh, so it's just it's really important to to be able to offer that and to respect that. You know, the work will get done. Uh, people have really uh, been much more productive even than before the pandemic. They just need to be able to work uh, at a time that allows them to manage their other responsibilities.
0: And so let's get back to the list of demands you were talking about. We talked about shorter working hours. Better pay, I believe, was number two.
3: That's right. Better pay was the second demand. And women in 1908, they just wanted to be paid better. They wanted a wage that probably bore some resemblance to the hours that they were that they were working. You know, the conversation now is around pay gap. In the UK, for example, has a gender pay gap regime initiative. To mark how people are paying uh, women, according to other parts of the of the company, when we when we think about you know pay equity, um, which is the bigger conversation as well, whether someone is being paid equitably for the role that they're that they're performing compared to other people. This is a relative experience, but ultimately, pay equity is is a conversation that many companies uh, should be having. The other Point that I made of the three demands was just the, um, the the right to vote. So, voting rights, and I won't get into the whole history of it, but essentially, you know, how slow uh, we've been across the world to to grant uh, voting rights is, is really an indication of 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 slowness of so this pace of change that we that we look at um, historically. Women began asking for um, the right to vote uh, in 1908, as I mentioned, uh, with this with this march in the U.S. Um, and they didn't receive the the right to vote in in the US until 1920. Um, Black women, of course, received it much later, effectively being banned until 1965 with the passage of the the Voting Rights Act. Um, In 1918, in in the UK and Germany, women were given uh, the right to vote and in France, uh, women didn't have the right to vote really until around 1944. Um, Latecomers in Switzerland, women could only vote from 1971 at the federal law level. And they won the right to vote at local law level between 1959 and 1990. So, Saudi Arabia, I think, was the very last company, uh, country, excuse me, to grant uh, voting rights to women in 2015. Uh, that's that's pretty recent. That's pretty pretty long of a of a battle, if you think about it.
0: A- absolutely, and it's it's really interesting when you think about voting rights in relation. Can you talk a little bit about what the connection is between voting rights and representation and a workplace that meets the needs of women?
3: For me, this 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 link is really a, it's a very clear uh, through line. So, you know, when we think about the original three demands and, and we see the differences of these uh, of these demands being met around the world and how, how it really depends on which country you're looking at, you know, what what the participation uh, level and the voting rights was for women. Uh, It it really shouldn't surprise us that there are differences in the world in terms of other uh, basic rights and that these extend to what we see in terms of other uh, of participation, full participation in society, including uh, representation in the company's senior leadership ranks, including representation uh, in, in the boardroom.
0: For companies that operate around the world where there are so many differences, how can those types of companies like the one that you and I both work for, MSCI, how how can they go about addressing these barriers?
3: I think it's really important for uh, global companies to remember that, you know, in particular for any diversity, equity or inclusion uh, policy, that you have to have uh, a, a line of sight and some insight into the local uh, circumstance. So I think you know the way MSCI uh, looks at this. Our, our our standards are global. We will have DE and I standards and expectations that apply to all of our uh, workforce around the world. But we, at the same time, take a local uh, lens, and we're and we're ensuring that we look at um, any sort of um, diversity-related conversation with the perspective and the context uh, that that the local situation require. So the important thing is to be able to identify that you really may have a very different uh, circumstance from one country to another. Um, and that could be in the political system and that could be in, um, you know, what what's, what's happening in terms of women's rights from, from a historical perspective in a particular place and, and what people need to just be mindful of the local context. I think it's really important.
0: Start from where you are, essentially.
3: Exactly, exactly.
0: Another aspect of the report that I'd love to ask you about is, so it definitely showed that we had more representation of women on boards, in senior leadership positions, but one area that stood out as not changing, at least not significantly in the last five years or so, was the number of women who were CEOs. Why is there this disparity? What's behind that?
3: Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting um, piece that came out of the report, and we we know that we are seeing more women CEOs, but it's just not happening as quickly as as many would like. Um, you know, we need to keep an eye on the on the ultimate aim, so we're cultivating environments where all talent can thrive and succeed unimpeded by you know any perceptions that um, that gender differences would would um, would hold, but. Ultimately, I think we need to keep doing the day-to-day work of really developing uh, a bench of leaders, women leaders, and continuing to nurture them through the ranks. There should always be a second bench um, that we're nurturing and, and supporting for the next level. This, the CEO uh, suite is really difficult uh, to reach, but certainly without the pipelining and the real intentional work around building um, your leadership ranks with women, um, it, it's it's going to become something that continues to recede into the future.
0: And where does regulation fit into all of this? I think last time you were on, even we may have spoken about laws in California that talk about representation on boards. NASDAQ recently released some requirements that will go into effect later this year. Is this what it's going to take?
3: I think regulators and, and quasi-regulatory bodies like stock exchanges, et cetera, they, they've historically used their voice to to really sharpen the industry's focus on what they think matters and what they think people should be taking seriously. You know, they sort of signpost a direction of travel uh, to the industry so that so that people know, you know, what regulation might be might be coming uh, before they impose, you know, any kind of official mandates. But I think generally. Um, this can be a helpful approach, and it's certainly something that should influence and does influence other stakeholders like investors uh, and, and give them a sense of where they should be applying pressure. Um, but sometimes the regulation can really feel as if it's coming um, just a little too late. So I think when I look at the you know, the NASDAQ rule, the complier explain uh, quotas with respect to um, ethnic minorities, women on board, on boards, um, people from, the LGBTQ plus community. It's it's just an interesting time to come out with this. Uh, so what? Uh, so a rule that requires um, a company to appoint at least one woman to the board. You know, probably um, you know could inspire those companies who haven't done it yet to to do that. But it's it's sort of you know we, we, the conversation is sort of moving moving on, and we're and we're starting to think more about. More than a token representative, really thinking about you know representation that is proportional. So having something like you know thirty percent or even gender parity, which would be closer to fifty percent, um, on boards is what the companies that are sort of progressive and really thinking about the benefits of diversity are looking to do. Um, so I think regulation, you know, it can be helpful, but I think um, you know it, it's it might not be that it's actually. Um, you know, really enough to 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 spur um, the kind of change that we want to see right now. I think that I think the real question is, you know, what will it take to really accelerate this change and to get people uh, closer to to parity? And and I'm not sure that a regulatory suggestion to comply or explain really will do that.
0: Well, then let me ask you that question: What will it take? What does the future look like?
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting. We need to ensure that we stay focused you know as an industry on you know the benefits of diversity and diversity fatigue is actually it's really it's really a thing people talk about you know this phenomena that um you know people are kind of tired of talking about diversity but 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 i think you could only breach a level of diversity fatigue if you don't understand the the advances uh to the business that de and i can can make if you don't understand that de and is, is really mission critical, the way MSCI sees it as um, mission critical for a company's success. Um, I think if we have the right level of focus from senior management and accountability uh, for progress in dei then we should be advancing all women. And by this, I mean uh, very specifically to include Black women, you know, brown women, trans women, other women who identify with um, the lgbtq plus community uh, women with different abilities you know women at different stages in life etc if we really understand the value of diversity and the value and the innovative um, perspectives that are culminating in a stronger uh, team and a more sustainable business um, then we'll, we'll continue to do what we need to do to really advance um, each of those perspectives and we won't give up and we won't sort of lose lose hope i think we've come too far to stand by idly while these hard-fought gains recede into the distance. And so I want to believe that the future is bright and that we'll continue to see an acceleration uh, of this change, hopefully at a faster pace than it has been for the last uh, several years.
0: That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Christina and Tia, and to ESG Now host Mike DiSabato for sharing our airwaves. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't listened to ESG Now, definitely check it out. Mike and his co-host Bentley Kaplan take you on a weekly deep dive into a variety of ESG and climate research, which they deliver in their own unique style. New episodes drop every Friday. As for Joe and me, we'll be back two weeks from today with a look at why tech advances for investors are so much more than a new set of toys. We'll hear from those on the ground on both industries as they prepare to present their findings at the upcoming MSCI Nexus Conference. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.